0: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and
1: conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Is socially responsible investing a scam? I'm Emily Stewart, and I write for Vox about business and economics. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I want to feel good about the idea of ethical investing. It sounds really nice. You put your 401k into a sustainable fund and, theoretically, watch your retirement savings go up as you help save the planet. But the whole prospect of investing for good seems a little bit too good to be true. That's the case Tarek Fancy is making. From 2018 to 2019, he was chief investment officer of sustainable investing at BlackRock a giant investment manager. Basically, it was his job to make environmental, social, and governance investing, or ESG, a thing from the inside. He's since left BlackRock and has started speaking out. He's now running the Rumi Initiative, an education technology nonprofit. His argument, in a nutshell, is that responsible investing is a bit of a scam, and that it's a dangerous one at that. When people think that they can end racism or curb climate change through an ETF—that's an exchange-traded fund—they're not focused on actual solutions, solutions that he says need to come from the government. I wanted to talk to Fancy because I sort of buy into what he's saying. But I also have a hard time swallowing the idea that ESG is completely made up. I've also talked to plenty of people in the space who say he's got it wrong. More broadly, I wanted to dig into Tarek's assertion that we're being fed a shit version of capitalism, as he puts it. Though he doesn't believe capitalism itself is the problem, which, again, I'm not sure how I feel about. What if both ESG and capitalism are scams? What then? Tarek Fancy, thanks so much for being here.
2: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
1: You recently have been in the headlines quite a bit because of your critique of sustainable investing, or I guess ESG, environmental governance and social investing. Before we get into your thoughts on that issue, can you talk a little bit about just like what it is for the ordinary person who might not know except for seeing it on their mutual fund or ETF?
2: Sure. So ESG, I mean, it it can be confusing, In many ways, because it's sometimes represented as all things to all people. But Uh in general, the the simple idea behind it is that the financial markets are adept at connecting savers' capital, meaning our bank deposits or pension funds managed on our behalf or our 401ks, with the most productive uses of that capital in the economy, right? So that it goes to, you know, backing the right entrepreneurs or building the solutions we need that creates jobs, and that's kind of the win-win because then we get a better return on the investment and it creates value for society and jobs and productivity. ESG is in a sense, an attempt to sort of say that we should overlay environmental and social considerations in particular into that capital allocation process. So that in addition to trying to get the best return possible on investments, we can also try to create some kind of measurable social return. And so that's the general premise around it. It get manifested in different ways. And there is usually a lack of clarity around whether it's good for investing, which means, you know, I use ESG data, I can I can actually produce a better investment or have lower risks, or is it good for the world, which is not the same as, you know, good for the investment return.
1: Right. And so in practice, I guess what this looks like is your 401k, an ETF or a mutual fund that you're investing in, it says it's, I don't know, fossil fuel free or something like that.
2: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I think, there's such a wide spectrum of financial assets available from like venture capital funds that invest in innovators and so on to sort of the most passive ETFs that are just a, frankly, a basket of shares from the public markets that you can own, right? That there's a lot of details in the weeds, but generally speaking, that's really it, right? It's this idea that you can sort of buy of funds that in some sense are better than the average regular fund because these ESG funds sort of maybe do something for the world at the same time.
1: Uh-huh. And they've become pretty popular in recent years, right? Like I was listening to a podcast a while back and they were trying to sell me a, an ETF that was was good for progressives. Like these are everywhere.
2: They are everywhere. I mean, in a sense, there's growing social angst about the frankly failure of government in many ways to deal with environmental and social challenges, right? We all see that and we see people protesting in the streets around it and saying, why is nothing getting done about climate change? Why is there such slow progress on the rights of black people in America, you know, over decades. And all of these things have created this idea for people that like we can invest our way to a better future. And of course, asset management firms have noticed that and realized that if you repackage an existing product, and put sort of progressive labels or green labels or whatever, then you have a better chance of raising funds for your business as well as, frankly, at higher fees, right? Because it's sort of like if you go to the grocery store and there's two apples and they're the exact same Mm -hmm. and then one of them has an organic sticker on it. Well, generally speaking, people, if they're the same, they're going to take the organic one and usually they'll pay a bit more for that. And that's the same idea here is if you have a fund that you can kind of put an ESG sticker on, then you're likely to get higher fees and more fund inflows.
1: Mm -hmm. So basically it's higher fees because financial managers sort of feel that they can charge more because you're going to be willing to pay more.
2: Exactly, right? What we need as a society is everything to be green, right? The financial system needs to be green and aligned in fighting climate change. When I go to the grocery store, you need to have products on the shelf that, you know, not a green product and a non-green product. That's not the solution we need. We need all of them to be green, right? We need things on our shelves that don't pollute or cause all kinds of issues in their production process. And because there has been lax regulation and no one really fixing it, there's a growing social length where people are saying, hey, we we need something. And so the free market's answer to that is to basically put something on the shelf next to the traditional product that has a green label on it and ask you to pay more for it.
1: And what did that look like? Within BlackRock? I mean, when you go to such an expansive place, like what is sustainable investing or a sustainable investing efforts look like there?
2: It's kind of, it works in two ways. The first is that for everything that exists already, so BlackRock is, you know, $9.5 trillion, the largest asset manager in history, for all of their existing investment products, you try to integrate. ESG considerations into all of those processes, right? So that's a process enhancement. And the second thing is that in addition to a process enhancement, there's a whole bunch of new products that can be created, right? And those are obviously not the whole nine and a half trillion. It's a subset of it that's growing, where it would be green bonds, ESG ETFs, you know, a whole set of products that purport to both achieve a financial return alongside some kind of measurable social impact.
1: And basically, your argument is they don't work. Or what BlackRock is doing doesn't work.
2: It's not even BlackRock specific. It's the entire industry. I'd I'd say BlackRock is just the largest one, Mm -hmm. right? And so that gave me a vantage point of trying to integrate ESG into the largest pool of assets available in capitalism today. And I could see very clearly that it didn't work nearly as well as people expected, just mainly because there's data inconsistencies, Difficult standards. Usually it's because investment strategies are very short term oriented. So they don't care, frankly, about climate change. Don't get me wrong, the people care about it, right? But the strategy, if they're focusing three or six months out, you're not going to start adapting or changing what you're doing significantly in response to climate change if it's just way outside of the horizon that you're paid to focus on. But the biggest problem overall, where I saw it didn't work, is that there's this fallacy that has been pushed significantly by business leaders that. Being a responsible company is good for profits. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And it sounds wonderful, right? We all want to believe that. We want to live in a society where being a responsible company is, you know, it's a good thing. Right. The problem is that doesn't happen unless you have government regulation to actually ensure that. So think of a sports analogy, you know, it's competition, right? Because competitive sports are like competitive markets. They have rules and people have goals within them. On the basketball court, you're trying to score points. On the playing field of capitalism, you're trying to maximize profits but each case you're operating within the rules. If you had a sports game, right, let's say a basketball game where the players started playing dirty because it allowed them to score more points and the referees don't close that loophole, then, you know, what we need in society is, or what we need in the sport is that clean play is rewarded. But that doesn't happen by us just continually saying that, right? You need referees and rules that come in and enforce that. And what's happened in the last few years is that, as there's been growing social angst about addressing climate change and a whole host of social issues, I'd say that chiefly among them, the rising inequality, you have this narrative coming out of business that basically says, oh yeah, like being responsible is good, which is sort of a way of convincing people that they don't need to be regulated, right? Imagine the athletes on the field. If they don't want the referees coming back. The first thing they're going to say is, no, 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 like, don't worry. You don't need referees. Like, we can self-referee. And then you'll, they'll try to convince people that, listen, you don't really need to referee us because we're going to go out and do the right thing on our own because it's in our incentives, right? We, we just want to score points. And it turns out that, you know, being responsible and being a clean player and sportsman-like scores more points. The fact of the matter is that's not true. What mm-hmm. I saw behind the scenes was exactly what the recent Facebook whistleblower said she saw, which is that she saw every single time it came to a decision between maximizing profits or doing what's in the interest of society, Facebook would choose profits. And it surprised no one that that's what I saw at a systemic level at the world's largest asset manager, which is that you know, very often profits and purpose don't overlap. And every single one of those situations, profit is the one chosen, not because people are bad, because that's the way the system works, right? People have legal obligations and financial incentivized to focus on maximizing value, which is measured in dollar value, not social values.
1: Right. I mean, will you talk about this purpose rhetoric, your old boss at BlackRock, Larry Fink, is quite a big leader in this, right? Since like 2018, puts out letters saying we need companies to think bigger. What do you make of his rhetoric, I guess, then? Like, does he mean well? What's going on?
2: It's a good question. I think That he meant well in the beginning when he was doing it. I mean, I certainly don't cast aspersions on anyone who believes or who did believe that Panglossian view of the world, Mm -hmm. because frankly, I believed it, right? That's why I, I joined in the first place to do it. It's something we all want to believe. The reality, though, is that it just doesn't work and it's delaying regulation. And I think at this point, or in the early years, you could call it maybe green wishing It maybe wasn't outright greenwashing, but it was excessively hopeful, especially when applied to a set of challenges the society desperately needs to solve. I think in 2021, anyone still making that argument, particularly someone who is at the top of the system and has the vantage point, as I did, to understand how it works, I think it moves to greenwashing because it's very hard for them to make an argument that you don't need government to lead the way in flattening the greenhouse gas emissions curve when number one, that's what all our experts are telling us, right? It's, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists and so on have been saying for decades that we need significant policy reform. And B, we've all just endured a health crisis where science told us again that we had to flatten the curve, right? And in the case of COVID, it was infections. The difference is the incubation period, right? COVID, you can figure out if you get it in a few weeks. Climate change takes a few decades. And right now, business leaders, they all agree that we needed government action to flatten the infections curve because it was moving fast and it affected their interests. But when it comes to climate change, their argument, very disingenuously, to be honest, is that, oh, no, 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 don't worry, we'll leave that to the free market. And that's because in most cases, they know that fixing climate change is going to be extremely expensive Mm -hmm. and it's going to cost them money. And, you know, frankly, if you can kick the can down the road a few years, there's no question that it's worse for society because prevention beats cure. But- their incentives are usually in the next few years out, right? So the best way to maximize their own profits, and this is how the system in general works at the aggregate, is to you know market yourself as being green rather than actually making the difficult long-term investments to be green that would, in theory, pay off in 10 or 20 years.
1: You know, I talked to someone in the ESG field, who I will not <laughs> name now, about your take a few weeks ago. And you know what he said to me is he said, you know, he's a great guy. He couldn't figure it out at BlackRock. But just because he couldn't figure it out doesn't mean that it's not possible to actually do sustainable investing. And I guess I'm curious what you'd say to that. Like, just because you couldn't figure it out, does it mean that the whole industry doesn't work?
2: I mean, I'm not even sure how to answer that because I don't really (laughs) know what he means, by didn't figure that out. I mean, I'm a trained investor, right? Uh I learned to invest in the most aggressive style of hedge fund investing where, you know, at one point we had 50% returns annualized for a period of time. I mean, you know, one of the top performers in in the, in the area. I mean, I can be honest with you. I've seen different data sets across investing. I've done it non-ESG investing. I've built strategies. When I got to ESG and looked at it as an investor, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'll tell you one thing for sure. Nobody in the ESG space today is going to say what I'm saying because, I mean, at some level, their jobs depend on it, right? I mean, right. they're not going to go out and say that, yeah, you know, and, and I don't cast aspersions on them because I'll be honest, I couldn't have said what I'm saying now while I was still in the industry. But when he says, or she says, you know, or works or doesn't work, I'd say, listen, it's the largest asset manager in history. We had all the resources. We had the best teams. We had the best people. And all, all I saw was a system where ESG assets increase every single year. ESG words and what I call sustainable babble, all the marketing <laughs> around it increases every year. And it increases alongside emissions and inequality, and all the things the ESG is actually you know, meant to do something about. And it's because the mechanics don't work, right? That's why there's no Nobel Prize winning economist going out there and saying you should buy a low carbon ETF to fight climate change. They're saying we need a price on carbon. And my concern and why I started publicly arguing this is that I don't even think it's harmless, right? In the sense that like, okay, well, you know, you thought the CSG fund would do some good for the world. Turns out next year, we're just getting closer to disaster and it didn't do anything and hasn't moved the needle. The challenge is that it actually actively distracts people from the solutions that we need, Mm -hmm. right? Because people have a limited bandwidth to focus on an invisible crisis that is slowly moving in a direction of catastrophe, right? We're the the boiling frog. And I think in, in that context, if you have a bunch of convenient fantasies that the business community is selling to address an inconvenient truth, you know, we end up in a situation where it actually wastes serious time, right? For years, people will kind of believe that this can help, only to realize that, you know, it obviously didn't. And in the end, we still need a carbon tax, and it's 2027. And the only thing that's happened is we've kicked the can down the road. A bunch of firms have made more profit in the meantime, both by delaying taxes and regulation, as well as selling a bunch of sort of green products products into the void that have no impact but higher fees. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actively damaging, you know, to sell the world a placebo at a time that we need responsible leadership.
1: You know, I do want to talk a little bit about divestment because that's related, obviously. And this is actually one where I kind of had a little bit of a back and forth with some coworkers recently because I want to believe in divestment, right? Like, I want to think it's good that Harvard just made its announcement or whatever. But is divestment actually... Helpful?
2: No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could. I wish I could tell you that it is, but it's not.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I mean, think of it this way: there's an important distinction between primary funding and secondary funding mm-hmm. in the financial markets. So I'm going to try not to bore anyone to death, so I'll make it really simple. Primary funding is: here's an innovator. So you, Emily, you've decided that you have a new product that does carbon capture and storage, for example. It's a great new innovation, and the world needs more of it. And we need to commercialize this technology. So if I give you funding that's primary, that means you actually get more capital. You now have a million dollars to go and build this out. That's primary funding, it's fresh, you're buying new shares in a company, you're providing new capital to an innovator. The majority of ESG products today, by which I mean like 99%, Mm -hmm. are secondary shares, right? right? What that means is that you're not getting new funding because you've already sold shares that sit on public secondary markets. And when you go and you buy or sell those shares, you know, the company doesn't get affected at all because they already sold those shares, right? So if I go and buy an Apple share, it's not like they end up with X dollars more. And, you know, it's just that my money goes to whoever sold the shares in the public markets. The big challenge is that with divestment, they're always operating in secondary markets. And they're trying to say that we're going to deprive fossil fuel players of capital, which isn't true because frankly, if you sell it, the shares, those shares are already publicly traded. Someone else is going to buy them. By definition, you can't sell them unless someone's buying them, right? right? That's number one. Number two, it doesn't do anything to lower emissions. There's no, I mean, if the goal is to divest, then by all means, we should go invest. I would argue that the goal is not to divest, it's to lower emissions. And not only is there no evidence that divestment lowers emissions, it runs counter to what societal experts are telling us, which is that, you know, you need policy reform at a government level. You need to make an objectionable behavior less profitable, for example, through a carbon tax, and then less capital will flow there. But I'm especially negative on divestment because I started my career doing distressed investing, and I was in a part of the market where we knew well that if people were selling stuff for whatever reason, it's, they don't think it's ethical, whatever, we didn't care, right? <laughs> we would go and buy the shares because as long as it's legal and it makes money— you know then you'll buy it right because that's the way the system works and so divestment has unfortunately made a lot of noise but mm-hmm. i'm worried that not only does it not actually lower emissions or reduce capital to these players in any way shape or form it also actually serves as a distraction because we're putting our energy into something that probably doesn't have a lot of impact
1: right i mean i guess there the argument that proponents of divestment would make at least some of them is that it's I guess, a good publicity campaign. But again, I guess the question is, is that the best place to focus
2: energy? Yeah. And, I, and, and you know, on some level, I've overheard the publicity argument. Mm-hmm. I'm like, sort of like it's 2021. Like, do we really need publicity around the fact that fossil fuel companies are doing something that's damaging society? Like the question comes down to mandatory compliance versus voluntary compliance. For some reason, even the activists are engaged in a neoliberal world where the only options are to divest of the shares of these companies or to engage with them. So you own the shares and you try to like convince them to change their behavior. I would argue that there's a third avenue that is obvious. It's called regulation. (laughs) It's what all the experts tell us we need. And like, imagine in the 50s when we figured out that smoking causes cancer. I mean, imagine people said, let's just sell the shares of tobacco companies. That'll solve it. It wouldn't do anything. Someone else will buy the shares and people still buy cigarettes, they'll smoke, they'll get cancer. You know, the answer was government regulation around restricting how they market it, making sure they're honest about the risks, restricting sale to minors. And 1960s, right, when Martin Luther King is arguing for civil rights, you know, imagine that he'd said, oh, the answer is we should all go to our 401ks and sell, you know, the shares of companies that discriminate against black people. It'd be ridiculous, right? I mean, instead, they marched on Washington. In both cases, the answer was government regulation. And I fear that if you have all the experts telling us that that's the answer, I can tell you from inside the system, from an area where money is being made by not regulating stuff, right, it's the last thing they want. I can tell you it's the answer. I'm very concerned that, you know, there's a clutter of misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. We're making very little progress on climate change. The more that we divide our energy amongst populations that are not all that inclined to make big sacrifices yet, I think that, you know, we'll find that we've just burned valuable time.
1: Corporations are not civil rights activists. And yet, they seem very driven to convince us that they're doing good things for the world, above and beyond their drive to maximize profits. But what's really behind these theatrical efforts to do business for good? I'll ask Tarek Fancy after a quick break.
3: Support for the Gray Area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small, hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like T-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago. And they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own. And every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym. I wear them around the house. I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
1: a little bit now to the theatrics of business for good, which you've talked about a few times, but I want to dig into that a little bit more. We've obviously seen this trend of businesses coming out and saying we're going to do a good thing, whether it be at the outset of the pandemic, companies wanted us to know that they were here for us, right? Or around Black Lives Matter, we saw these diversity pledges and these companies saying yes, Black Lives Matter. Why do businesses want us to feel good about them? Supposedly doing good?
2: I mean, in general, I think it's important for their marketing and brand and PR. Not all businesses, to be clear, there's a whole bunch of businesses that don't care about that kind of stuff, either because of where they're geographically located or because, you know, maybe they have a brand that's not consumer facing, right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of companies that are worth 50 or 100 billion that the average person in the street would have never heard of because they're doing things behind the scenes, you know, business to business rather than business to sort of straight consumers. And so the ones that are most consumer facing, they really do care about their image. And it's important to be seen on the right side of social trends. The reality, though, is that, you know, they only care insofar as it impacts their brand. And so you might find, as we saw with Black Lives Matter last year, that a lot of them made serious pledges around all these things they were going to do to address racial inequality. And my question with that would be, number one, a little bit disconcerting to me that like the impetus for change comes all of a sudden from businesses when it's on the news, right? It flares up because these should be policy issues that the government or someone is thinking about doing all the time, not just when, you know, someone gets murdered on cell phone camera, right? Um, Number one. Number two is that as soon as that media attention goes away, you find that the impetus for them from a financial perspective to follow through with those promises is not what we need, right? And so a lot of them made pledges and they've actually been unfulfilled. And, you know, the reality is business is going to focus on being on the right side of social issues when they spike in prominence, right? When Me Too explodes and Black Lives Matter explodes, when COP26 happens, you know, they want to talk climate change. But that's not an effective way to run society right? Is the social media feed rife with controversy, particularly when, you know, there are easy solutions to regulate and solve these problems that aren't getting done.
1: Yeah, I think a lot about the business roundtable, which
2: is, you know, this
1: lobbying group with CEOs that they a few years ago, right, came out and said, we have to kind of rethink stakeholder capitalism. And, and everybody, all these big companies, like we really need to think about doing good. And like, that's just translated into basically nothing,
2: right? Pretty much. I mean, it's, It was PR. I mean, there was two professors at Harvard Law School that did a study afterwards, and they were suspicious that what the Business Roundtable was saying had no legal bearing or strength whatsoever. And so they went and they asked companies, they said, how many of you who have signed this have actually brought it to your board to look at, right? Which in theory, if you're changing your goal from focusing on shareholders to focusing on all stakeholders, like at a minimum, that's probably something you want to run by the board of directors that has a legal obligation Uh to focus on shareholder value. And in fact, 98% of the ones that responded had not taken it to their board, right? So you could sort of see that it primarily serves the role of a PR document. And I would argue that that PR document's goal, whether the writers of it would admit it or not, was to delay taxes and regulation, right? If you think about it, stakeholder capitalism is basically a bunch of players on a field saying, oh, yeah, we're going to play more sportsmanlike from now on, right? But it's kind of all PR oriented. And it seems designed to keep the referees at bay as long as possible.
1: Right. I know, I think it was earlier this year, Jeff Bezos, in one of his last letters as Amazon CEO, kind of wrote literally in parentheses, like, we would be open to more corporate taxes. And it's like, A, you had to put in parentheses, but B, you are presumably part of the Business Roundtable, which is actively lobbying against an increase in corporate taxes, right? Like this is saying one thing, but kind of supporting exactly the opposite.
2: That's pretty much it. I mean, right now you have a whole bunch of CEOs out there saying, we believe the science of climate change. And that's really important, right? Because with the smoking industry years ago, fossil fuels, they denied the science, right? They tried to muddy the science as long as they could. What we've found is we've gotten to a point on climate change in particular where all of the leading voices, all of the members of the elites, all the CEOs, they all say, Yes, we understand, we're not fools. We know the science is real. We know that we need to do something about it. But then when it comes to actually, you know, the second piece, which is like, how do you actually solve the problem? They are dragging their feet on it and they're saying on stage and in public that, like, we want to solve this problem. But then when government tries to enact something like a carbon tax, an aggressive carbon tax, right, of the type that, you know, again, economists are telling us we need, you find that behind the scenes, they are lobbying to prevent aggressive climate action or delay politicians from enacting climate legislation. They're marketing to the world that, you know, they can solve the problem purely through voluntary action Mm -hmm. right which is ridiculous because it's going to cost people money to make that transition so you can't leave it voluntary you know in general it's sort of like again you use sports analogy here's the players on the field and they're saying listen there's no referees around so we're gonna self-referee and it kind of makes sense if it's a sunday afternoon game where i'm playing soccer with my buddies at the park it does not make sense when you have an actual competitive professional system where there are referees there on the side, but they're not doing their job because A, those players are literally paying them often to not do their job by like lobbying and other things behind the scenes. And then marketing to the world that like, who needs referees anyway? Stakeholder capitalism is the answer.
1: Right. Or just, you know, we can recycle our way to saving the planet and 401k invest our way and that it's sort of on the individual consumer sometimes a little bit too.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the biggest fallacies, right? I mean, the neoliberal approach will always favor individual action more than collective action, right? In that sense, it's almost a veering towards sort of a libertarian kind of view where all these people acting and you know, on their own will aggregate into the change we need. We just saw with COVID that didn't make any sense, right? If we just left the bars open and the schools and everything and said, hey, let's see if that bends down the curve, like it clearly would not have worked at all. And so government quickly realized that it needed to step in. It both had the democratic legitimacy to do it. And B, it had the special powers to be able to just say, listen, schools have to be closed, bars have to be closed, because you couldn't leave it up to individuals to make that decision because it obviously wouldn't work very well. But with climate change, again, we've got to flatten the curve. The experts are telling us that we need to enact a carbon price. We need to have industry by industry standards from vehicle emissions limits for automakers, you know, energy efficiency standards for buildings, and that if you enact those sort of guidelines, then Private markets and the private sector, they're still going to do the heavy lifting, right? But now they have different goalposts to aim at. And those goalposts are now set up according to what is in the long-term public interest. But that doesn't really happen right now if everyone believes you could just do individual action and all of us should just try to cycle to work and eat local and all. I mean, that's wonderful, but our results are going to be determined not by the best in society, but by the worst. And so just like, you know, if you and I wore a mask at the height of the pandemic with no vaccine, but no one else wore a mask, like pretty sure we're not going to flatten the curve.
1: Right. I thought a lot about during the early pandemic as I was like, well, I'll just order delivery to save the local restaurants. And it's like there's no way that I personally can save my favorite bar down the street. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they need exactly. the government loan. I just want to talk about and this is sort of a thing that I struggle with sometimes. Like I tend to fall on the same side as you, that business has a profit motive. That outdoes all else. Every once in a while, I run into people who will say, to put it kind of short, big companies can save the world, which to be clear, I don't buy. But they will say there is this argument that big companies have quite a bit of reach, right? And international reach and have the potential to do good, like, you know, power in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg, obviously bad. But Walmart, for example, if they do a good thing, they employ a lot of people is good where do you land on that sort of argument?
2: I actually think that that argument can potentially be misleading, right? Mm -hmm. Because the answer is absolutely business can save the world and do the right things, and it must save the world and do the right things, right? And it's not, business versus government is, it's not really a question of government as provider going and building the stuff, right? It's more as government as regulator, Mm -hmm. as setting up the rules. And so, Business has most of the capital, most of the jobs in the economy, right? It has to do the right thing. The fundamental question is how does that happen? Is it through mandatory compliance or voluntary compliance? Now, given that fighting climate change is going to be extremely expensive and extremely difficult, we know that, I mean, it's an unfortunate reality, but it's not like the climate crisis is something we would have wished upon ourselves. It's The reality is we've built an entire global energy system and global economy, around exploiting fossil fuels and now suddenly we realize that we really can't do that anymore and have to quickly phase that out. That's an expensive problem to fix, right? And so if you leave it up to businesses to say, I have a plan, we are gonna be net zero, voluntarily be net zero by 2050, I'm extremely doubtful that that's gonna work, right? It's a purely voluntary mechanism, asking them to sacrifice profits in the near term to do something in the long-term public interest, even though we know they're locked into profit maximization through legal obligations and financial incentives, and the senior managers have incentives that are only a few years out. I mean, that to me, strikes me as a recipe for disaster. Will big business help? Yes, but it has to be mandatory. The compliance has to be mandatory. So if, you know, you say, listen, like, hey, I'm happy you're planning to be net zero by 2050. By the way, here's a carbon tax to make sure that you are, you have an extra incentive now to reduce your, carbon emissions, otherwise you have a bunch of CEOs saying, hey, there's something really expensive that's gonna cost me money during the period of when I get paid, it's gonna pay off 30 years from now when I'm 100 years old, but don't worry, you can trust me to do the right thing. And then they'll have a whole bunch of stories around, oh, it's in everyone's interest and the planet won't be here if we don't do it. And I'm like, listen, I, I was in the financial services sector when the financial crisis happened. It was ridiculous, but you had a whole bunch of large banks where the incentives inside those banks were misaligned Mm -hmm. and you had people making bank, right? Tons of money off doing things that were adding massive risks on to the system. And basically, the banks blew themselves up, right? Their share prices went into the toilet and they needed a government bailout. If we can't rely on the financial system to self-regulate itself, to protect their own shares, I mean, literally their own companies, how can we possibly expect it to fix climate change, right? I mean, they're more likely to save their own shares than they are the planet. And they couldn't even do that when they were self-regulating.
1: <laughs> right. I am curious a little bit beyond government. Something that I do hear chatter of is that sometimes for businesses, you know, this idea of they're going to do good, quote unquote, good, is that pressure is coming from employees. And that that is a reason that a lot of companies sort of feel more pressure. Do you think that's? effective? Because we do see tech companies and all that kind of stuff. Employees, they want to work for companies that are good, I guess. Does that make a difference?
2: It does on the margins, right? I mean, I wouldn't tell anyone that that's not a good idea to do. Of course, it is a good idea to do both for your own personal satisfaction, as well as the fact that on the margins, that does help shift the culture and the conversation in a direction that's positive. But this is really important. We cannot confuse some progress with enough progress, right? That moves in the right direction, like a whole bunch of other tiny little things that have marginal value, so we should do them. But it's not a systemic solution, right? A systemic crisis, whether it's a global pandemic or the climate crisis, right? They require systemic solutions so that it's not just a few people operating individually, it's the entire system. Millions of firms, billions of people, trillions of transactions. To be truly systemic, you need reforms that are led by government. But again, government's not building. No one's saying the government's going to go and build factories and compete with Tesla. That would be a disaster. It's more about saying, hey, we need more capital going into stuff that's good for the world in 20 years. And so how do we encourage the green transition? And with Operation Warp Speed to produce a vaccine, we could see how Government invested directly into the R&D of a number of companies. The U.S. government did vaccine pre-orders for like over a trillion doses, which obviously multiple times the U.S. population. All this was done because government realized that A, we can't build vaccines. We need the pharma companies to do it. But B, they need to have the right incentives. And so if they don't have a guarantee of pre-orders, they may not start doing any research. So we need to get like eight or 10 or 20 horses all running in the same direction as fast as possible. So one of them hits the finish line quickly and we can return life to normal. It worked, but we haven't seen anything like that with the climate crisis, even though all of the ideas are there and we know we can invest in the kind of base research and other things that would allow us to get the technologies, to allow us to decarbonize faster.
1: Well, this is the kind of perfect segue to kind of the last few things I wanted to talk about, which is the solutions part. I tend to be a little bit like, you know, as I said, business is bad and they're never going to help. And I don't know what the answer is to any of this. I am curious kind of just start where we started, I guess, at the micro level. If I'm a regular person looking at my 401k or my Robinhood account and feeling like I should try and do good with it, or just I care about the planet and I have a 401k. I know you can't give investing advice, but like, how should I think about investing sustainably? Should I not think about it at all?
2: I would say, and this is going to be controversial, I would say that you shouldn't think about it. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be responsible and try to save the planet. It's that that's not the place to do it. Mm -hmm. If you were to just go and buy an ESG fund, number one, there's zero evidence that there's any impact that's going to improve the planet out of that. And I would argue, having seen the inside, that I'm quite certain that there's not going to be any impact of any of that anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Number two, you will, though, pay higher fees, right, to an investment manager, because they know that by putting ESG or green on it, you know, on average, an ESG fund has 43% higher fees, right? So that's a problem. But I think the biggest problem is that what ends up happening is that if the more that people are likely to buy those kinds of things, those products, the less likely they are to then support government action afterwards. Because you've kind of felt like you did your thing, right? If Wall Street goes out and says, hey, you know, you have, two ways to fight climate change. You can either buy a low carbon ETF or you could call your congressperson and demand a price on carbon. People don't do both. And they're definitely not likely to pick the one with the word tax in it, right? <laughs> so they all go for the placebo. And in the end, it doesn't actually create any impact. And every year emissions go up. So I would honestly tell you that your 401k is not the right place to do it. Because the few funds that do have real world impact, most of them are not investable by the general public, mm-hmm. right? They're either venture capital type funds or there's specific sort of private vehicles that you couldn't really access as an individual. Mm-hmm. And i tell you one point I think that's important to stress. You said that you know you kind of come from a position where business is bad or it's you can't trust them. It's funny, despite everything I'm saying, I'm a capitalist, right? Started my career as a banker, I have an MBA. I believe the capitalist system works. Where I am very worried is that the current leaders, the guardians of capitalism, on their watch, capitalism is getting destroyed piece by piece, right? I mean, I just turned 43 recently. The data shows that the majority of the people younger than me don't believe in capitalism. And it's because they're seeing, frankly, shit version of capitalism, where clearly we need real regulation to fix the system. They're selling a bunch of placebos that are intended to maintain the status quo. And no one has really asked that, listen, like in the post-World War II period in the U.S., there was no acronym ESG, Mm -hmm. right? There was no parallel financial system of green assets with higher fees that purported to undo what the regular financial system was doing on a daily basis. And we had better outcomes, right? We had better outcomes, less economic inequality, better environmental protection. I mean, Richard Nixon, of all people, founded the EPA in 1970. I think that what needs to happen is a reversal of a set of economic narratives that began in the 80s, generally around the Thatcher-Reagan sort of era that sort of said free markets solve all problems and get back to a place where government actually regulates effectively to protect the public interest. And we haven't seen that yet. And what instead is happening are people are being lured into buying a bunch of sort of green products that don't create any impact and are just creating a large societal placebo.
1: I mean, I do want to dig in a little bit on what does a, to use your language, non-shit version of capitalism look like? Is it not neoliberalism? What's the better way here?
2: I think it's as simple as saying, look, even the most ardent capitalist understands that there are rules. There's this nonsensical idea that the free market exists. It's a lot of total bullshit. There's no such thing as a free market, right? Ask any lawyer. A market is a collection of rules. And within those rules, market players operate to maximize profit. And because those rules are in place, they mean that society gets protected. So you can't just take the chemicals out of your plant and dump them in the river next door because you are going to get fined or there's going to be a penalty. And if you didn't have that fine or penalty, maybe people would do it more because it's a cheaper way to run your business. But you have rules. They're around property rights. They're around pollution. They're around labor laws. And all of those rules are what govern the game, just like the you know rules in a sports game would uh-huh. govern the sport. And people have been convinced that there's a free market and this is what it looks like and therefore capitalism doesn't work. And I would argue that there are good ideas across the board from leading experts, policymakers, economists in particular, that'll tell us that here's what a non-shit version of capitalism looks like. You know, allowing people to pollute and harm the public and get away without paying the cost of that pollution is a terrible idea, so we need to have a price on carbon. Oh, by the way, when companies are evading taxes and paying nothing that's a disaster because how exactly are we gonna pay for schools and roads and bridges if no one pays any taxes? So we need to get rid of tax evasion, right? There's a whole set of things that can be done that will bring the system back to what it looked like in earlier eras or even what it looks like today, just in different countries, right? In the Scandinavian countries, which are all capitalists, but they have better outcomes on inequality and education and other things. But because the set of capitalists are trying to convince people that this is the only version of capitalism the entire system is increasingly at risk because it's not seeing the reform it needs.
1: Yeah, I know I think sometimes about disclosure, which seems to be a thing that everyone's like, we're going to make public companies say when they're doing a bad thing. And I know, I don't remember when maybe a few years ago, public companies had to start disclosing their CEO pay ratios, right? How much the CEO was making compared to their median worker And like, it's not like CEOs are not making money now. Like plenty of companies, it seems like they're fine to say like, yeah, this is bad, but we're going to keep doing it because who cares, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, disclosure is, it's a tricky one because there is definitely a push towards people saying that the answer is disclosure. Uh That's wrong. It's not the answer. It's part of the answer, Mm -hmm. right? It's necessary, but not sufficient. So, You need to understand what companies are doing in terms of their environmental footprint and other social issues and the gender pay gap, all these things. You want to be able to see them because what isn't measured isn't managed, is the old saying in business. And so we need to at least be able to measure it. But that's not sufficient, right? Just measuring it would be like saying on the sports field, okay, now we can understand who's playing dirty and who's playing, you know, who's playing a bit more dirty, who's playing a bit more clean. But that alone doesn't do anything unless there's a referee who's actually gonna penalize a dirty play. Otherwise, all that does is make it transparent. But does that necessarily change anything? I mean, besides CEO pay, it's like, you know, in New York, they started disclosing calorie counts on food, right, (laughs) that has not really gotten rid of obesity, right? So it's a part of the puzzle, but it's wrongly being treated as like the answer when in fact it's important and helpful, but it's definitely not the complete answer.
1: Well, I will say the calorie counts make me personally depressed every time I go to even get a coffee. And it's like, wait.
2: Same here. I I eat the same donut. I just feel worse about it in the end. Exactly. Mm, Donuts.
1: So it's starting to feel like socially responsible investing might just be a way to feel better about the same old dirty capitalist activity. But there's this interesting firm called Engine Number One that might provide a counterexample. Through owning a small minority stake in Exxon, Engine Number One was able to get three seats on the company's board. Could they meaningfully influence Exxon's agenda? That's what I'll ask Tarek after one last short break.
3: Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1, 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: I wanted to ask you a little bit about your take on Engine 1. Engine 1, obviously, Activist Fund just got some seats on Exxon's board. Do you see that as a positive overall?
2: I think on the margin, they can do a little bit to help, but my concern is that the irrational exuberance around sort of what they can achieve is actually more harmful because it just slows us down from making important changes. I mean, the reality is that when you get on the board of directors of a company, mm-hmm. you have what's called a fiduciary obligation to focus on shareholder interest, right? These companies are all registered in Delaware. There's a long legal history around this concept where they have to focus on shareholder returns, right? That's fine, that's not a bad thing. That's the way the system works. If you put a few well-meaning directors on the board of directors of an oil company, it's not like they can go and just tell the company to shut down a whole bunch of things because the company will lose money and that would be a breach of their fiduciary obligation. They have to focus on shareholder returns. The problem is this is fundamentally a company whose core business model harms society. And again, I'm doubtful that they can do anything because they have to maximize profits. They're legally required to do that, and maximizing profits for a fossil fuel company probably means exploiting more fossil fuels than we need, you know, as a society. Mm-hmm. So again, that, that's an area where I think mandatory compliance is critical. It has to be led by government. And again, you know, some of these solutions you almost just have to look back at history and like ask, why are we even talking about them? Like, imagine use the engine one thesis. Imagine in the fifties. You know, the idea for fighting tobacco companies when it was clear that smoking causes cancer was to fight one by one proxy fights with these companies to like get on the board of directors to tell them to voluntarily sell less cigarettes like it's just never going to work. And obviously the answer was regulation. Right. And I think we're in the exact same position now with fossil fuels. And my concern with this is that so much has been said about it. And yet the potential of what they can actually achieve is so minuscule that it just further delays us from enacting the reforms that we've known for a long time we need to do and are just getting kicked down, you know, where the can's getting kicked down the road. Mm
1: -hmm. I guess I'm curious, like, overall, as you've obviously been talking about this quite a bit over the past few weeks and months, what is something that you want people to take away from all of this? like? What do you want people to kind of know and feel after kind of thinking, wait, I've been seeing all these businesses saying they're doing good. My 401k is in an ESG fund. Like what in the world is going on? Is there kind of a positive lesson from this?
2: I think the most important lesson for people who care about addressing social and environmental causes is to remember that the most important changes we need at the speed that we need them to be made are gonna to have to come to changing the rules of the game. And that's something that only government can do. And unless someone is actually regulating and making companies through mandatory provisions do what is right by society, you're gonna find that a whole ton of them are gonna go and say they're doing good things even though they're not. Some of them may actually be doing good things, right? The problem is you have no way of knowing what's what. And so you're just sort of in this world where there's a whole bunch of marketing you start to realize over time that half of it doesn't make any sense and eventually people just lose faith in capitalism. And I would just say, look, the most important thing is to remember that the most important changes we need are going to have to come from policy reforms led by government. And when business leaders go out there and they claim they can do it all by themselves, the question isn't, are they gonna do it or not? Obviously they have to be part of the solution. The question is, do we believe in mandatory compliance or voluntary compliance? I would argue that these are important enough issues That we should be using the political system to enact the changes we need. And we should, frankly, rubbish the claims of anyone who says it's going to happen all by itself, by CEOs saying they're going to do the right thing. It's just another free market self-correct thesis that's going to waste valuable time. Mm -hmm.
1: I guess the scary part there is that what if the government doesn't do anything, but... Another question for another day, maybe.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, the answer then I would turn to the business leaders and say, hey, you know, you said you wanted to solve this problem. Here's one thing you could do to start is instead of trying to sell me this product that you put some green paint on and increase the price of, why don't you actually listen to what our Nobel Prize winning economists are telling us and say you support aggressive climate legislation? Mm -hmm. None of them are doing that right now. They're actively lobbying against those kinds of provisions in the background while publicly on stage saying that they think we need to do more about this. That's a recipe for failure for capitalism in general and for the planet and society. And somewhere in there, I think that's the most important piece that people have to focus on is that no matter what they say, it's like the old Reagan quote, trust but verify. Mm -hmm. Listen, business leaders, okay, well, we believe you. You want to be net zero in 2050. The only problem is we've had a record of watching targets get missed. So perhaps you won't mind if we enshrine that in law and then you could do what you're already saying you're going to do. And, you know, why would you fight against that if you're saying you're going to do it? And the reality is behind the scenes, they're fighting every single time against these provisions that they claim to care about and support in public.
1: Mm -hmm. So trust, but verify for Exxon and Facebook and all that fun stuff.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say people should be cynical, but I think we should be realists about it at least and, you know, not gobble up the marketing.
1: Well, thanks so much for doing this. This was great. I really learned a lot, honestly.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. Thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, Send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.